Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Fiesta Bowl Media Days wrapped up out in the desert. Now Clemson, Ohio State next. 8 o'clock kickoff Saturday night, ESPN. Clemson, a two-point favorite. Narrow margin, two-point favorites. It's what you get when number two is playing number three, but it's also kind of what you get regarding a Clemson team that has not really gotten the respect that its coach says it should be getting. Of course, that's Dabo Sweeney's M.O., but is he right? Eric Boynton of the Spartan Herald Journal, Spartanburg Herald Journal, was at Media Day today. We're going to check in with him. Eric, Merry Christmas. Hey, Scott, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year as well. I really appreciate you having me. Well, appreciate you coming on. How was your holiday? Were you, uh, were you already out in the desert? I was. I got in uh, Monday afternoon, so uh, we've just been kind of at a gorgeous hotel they've got us at. If you're ever in Scottsdale, yeah, I'll give them a plug here. They have the Marriott Camelback Resort. Just beautiful. So uh, not a bad place to, you know, to have to spend Christmas on a, on a work getaway. But uh, the good thing is the weather's finally cleared. I was pouring rain since we got here. We're finally, you know, getting a little, little few temps warmer and uh, a little bit of sunshine today. So that's nice to finally see. I was in Tucson once for a PGA Tour event and it snowed. <laughs> yeah, it's been crazy. I mean, we were here, you know, in 2016, uh, the last time these two teams played uh, in the Fiesta Bowl, and it was 70 and sunny all week long. And, and now we're, uh, we're just hoping to kind of see the sun for a few minutes. But uh, like I said, no complaints. Uh, it's going to be just one whale of a game. What a great heavyweight matchup. And, uh, man, it's, uh, if, if it plays out like I think it will, it, it should be just one fun ball game to watch. Well, Eric, what was your biggest takeaway from media day? Uh, just, you know, I think, I think both teams are confident. Both teams are loose. Uh, you, you mentioned coming in uh, to this about the, the disrespect uh, that Dallas Whiskey loves to harp on so much. I've never seen, uh, you, you know, somebody just continuously find ways to, to play the disrespect card and to genuinely get his kids to buy in. You know, you, Scott, you've been you know, through the wars and you've seen teams try to pull off like, Nobody thinks we can do this, and, and you just don't quite get from the players that, that, they're, they're, that they're buying into that. But I think Clemson uh, fully buys in. I know Trevor Lawrence, uh, you know, actually told us that, you know, it's not stuff that Coach Sweeney's making up. I mean, these are things he's shown us that have been said and been written. And, uh, you know, I mean, they were number one coming into the year. They've been, they, were, they were fifth in the opening college football playoff, but that, the committee knew that the team – the four teams ahead of them were all going to play each other at some point, or there was going to be a couple of matchups. So as long as Clemson kept winning, they were going to be fine. But one of the more interesting aspects of that is I, as I talked to J.K. Dobbins, the uh, you know the superstar tailback for Ohio State, uh, not today but uh, on Tuesday, and I asked him kind of about the did he feel like they were a little bit dissed, you know, moving down from from one to two after you know handling. Wisconsin, despite a poor first half, and then they were leapfrogged by LSU. And, and Dobbins said that Ohio State is by far the most disrespected team in the country. <laughs> so, I mean, I've just never seen, uh, you know, two, two uh, elite programs that are uh, combined 26-0 and and winning their games by uh, 38 points apiece each kind of try to outdo each other in the disrespect department. It's been kind of a remarkable thing to witness. Yeah, they need to be playing in the Lou Holtz Bowl. 
is what they yes, need to be playing. Exactly right. We're, we're joined by Eric Lou, Boynton. Uh, come back and do the analyst uh, role for this game, Scott. I mean, he could. If Lou could probably, uh, or Lou would, you know, go ahead and make sure that we knew that these were the two greatest teams in the history of college football squaring off. We're joined by Eric Boynton, Spartanburg Herald Journal. Follow him on Twitter at Eric J Boynton. And Eric, as you said, you mentioned Trevor Lawrence coming into this year. I said it last segment. We gave Trevor Lawrence the Heisman in August, but he got off to a rocky start. What was he doing? Not not necessarily wrong but not so much right at the beginning of the season and then what did he do to correct himself because since about mid-october if not slightly sooner he's been as good as any as any of these other guys yeah i think he's been the best quarterback in the time he, he i think he was the best quarterback coming in and i think he's been playing like the best quarterback in the country over you know the last couple of months the last whatever you want to say eight uh what do they played uh 14 games or uh, 13 games then over the last eight games uh, of the season, I think he's been, you know, the best quarterback in the country. And, and you know, we talked to him about this, and he was pretty candid. I mean, he's pretty much uh, kind of like his predecessor, Deshaun Watson, pretty much kind of a, a buttoned-up company line type of guy uh, when he gives interviews. He doesn't really give you a ton of insight, you know, into his heart or kind of into his mind. But he actually was pretty candid, uh, you know, going back about a month ago or a couple of weeks ago when we asked him about, has this been your best stretch? of your career, even including last year's two playoff games when he was just phenomenal uh, when they blew out Notre Dame and Alabama. And he just said that uh, he acknowledged to us, we always look at him as this, as this robotic, you know, the cliche ice in his veins type guy where nothing gets to him. And I don't think anything got to him early, but he admitted to us that, that he kind of was trying so hard to meet these, you know, sky-high expectations that so many people in the media and other places had placed on him. And he admitted that it kind of got into his brain a little bit, and all of a sudden you're you're you're, you're pressing, you're trying too hard. You, you know, you think you can make every throw instead of doing what he knows he's supposed to do and take the check down for a six, easy six-yard completion. He's trying to you know rocket arm it, it into a uh, you know a tight window, 35 yards downfield, and, and that wound up. Uh, he had eight interceptions. You know, I think in the first, uh, I think it was the first uh, six ball games, he had eight picks. So. Uh, you know, and he only had, I think, two or two all of last year in, 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 uh, when he took over the starting role in, in week five. So I think that was pretty much it. He was, And I think also, too, I think his confidence was probably a little bit elevated. And, and you start to maybe hear some of these press clippings. You think you can make every single throw, and I'm going to dazzle everybody with this great throw. And like I said, instead of doing the smart thing, and, and he knows how to read a field. And I think he was just trying to do too much. Finally, uh Life went on, and whatever it took to, for him to finally settle down, it was, uh, and and all of a sudden he said, "Okay, let's 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 play for me, play for my teammates. You can't go out there and try to play for guys like us, Scott. That, like you said, had hated him the Heisman before the year started. So I think that was pretty much all it was. It wasn't anything in his mechanics. He wasn't banged up. It was just simply, uh, you know, kind of a mental thing. And he's long past that now. And and I think Clemson's got a real big edge at quarterback. I, I know that uh, Justin Fields is is very very dynamic." He said his leg uh, the other day is not 100%. So, you know, if his mobility is, is uh, limited by anything more than just a, 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 a smidgen of an amount, I, I, that's going to be big. But I just think the difference, uh, I don't think that Fields' mobility is that much greater than Lawrence's. Lawrence is a vastly underrated uh, uh, runner. I mean, he's not a sprint guy, but he's very mobile in the pocket. He's got, you know, uh, really uh, under-the-radar type speed. 
Then we, we talk about throwing the football. It's no contest. Trevor Lawrence is light years better than Justin Fields in that department. So uh, I think Clemson comes in with a pretty big edge of quarterback, and you're seeing a confident and just really comfortable in his own skin right now, Trevor Lawrence. But what will Clemson do to protect Trevor Lawrence from that Ohio State front four, particularly Chase Young? Yeah, I mean, and, and Trevor's just he's going to have to get the ball out quicker. I, I talked to T. Higgins, Clemson's outstanding, uh, you know, junior wide receiver uh, here just within the last uh, couple of hours. And, and, uh, and, you know, and obviously as a receiver, especially at Higgins' level, you, you want to run every route perfectly. But Higgins said there's a, there is a definite, uh, you know, raised premium on these guys running as crisp a routes as they can get because they have to be at the right spot because they know that, that Lawrence is going to have to unleash those throws. Uh, a, a tick or two quicker than he has all season because Chase Young is not just Chase Young, and you know there's a lot of talent and a lot of depth. They they got a lot of dudes on that that they can rotate in and out and stay fresh. And of course, you know as as we know, Scott, uh, when you get with your Chase Young, you know it's not always the plays that he makes. A lot of times it's the double teams or the the guy that you have to stay in to help. Uh, you know maybe from tight end to help chip him and block him, and and that opens up things for other guys. So. Uh, that's what it's going to be. I think you're going to have to see uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, quicker throws, quick patterns, and, uh, and and certainly if they can get that running game going and kind of help keep the rush at bay and maybe get Travis Etienne involved early, which I'm sure they'll try to do. He's been he's going to be very fresh. I don't I don't think he had more than 19 carries in a game all season long. So that's going to be the key: really getting that running game going, making uh, Etienne a focal point, and then again they're just going to have to go with some quicker quicker throws. I don't know that he's going to get. Uh, a lot of chances to really just get back there, settle in, and then have time to throw the ball 50 yards down the field because the Buckeyes are going to be coming. And, Eric, you're there every day. You're around the program year-long. And if Clemson were to win another national title, that would be three and four years after going about three decades without one. And all the three of these titles would be under under Dabo Sweeney. I, I, I have to wonder this. Could we then say, or do we even say it now, that the balance of power has officially shifted and that Dabo Sweeney is the best coach in the country and maybe Nick Saban's day is done? Is that hyperbole too, too soon? How should we look at that? Probably a bit too soon, and, and um, you know, I would say X's and O's wise, and maybe experience, just because of his experience, I mean, you probably got to give uh, give Saban uh, still a little bit of an edge, and certainly his accomplishments and his resume uh, still uh, you know, beats uh, beat Dabble Sweeney by a, by a pretty good margin. And Dabble, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a little, little tiresome when you hear people say, well, well Sweeney's a cheerleader that hires good people, and he doesn't know his X's and O's. I mean, Dabo Sweeney's a long time, you know, never been a coordinator, but a long time assistant coach. He's been involved in football his whole life. He's a student of the game. This guy knows his X's and O's, and just because he he's made great hires like Brent Venables and and uh, you know Chad Morris a few years back, and of course uh, Tony Elliott's the the main offensive coordinator now with the departure of Jeff Scott for a head coaching role. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that because uh, he lets guys do his job, it doesn't micromanage. That doesn't mean that the guy doesn't know his coaching. But I would say as far as right now, um, you know, I'm not ready to go ahead and, and drop Alabama and say now they're yesterday's news because they missed, you know, the, the playoff for the first time uh, in, in, the, in the six years of the, of the college football playoff format with the four teams. And they missed it when, uh, you know, one of their, their best, uh, you know, Dylan Moses, one of their best uh, – Arguably, their best defender went out before the season started with a knee injury, and then of course, when you lose Tua like that, it's, it's hard to beat uh, uh, an LSU when LSU's 
you know, is probably you know playing better than anybody in the country from start to finish. And you, you got to beat Georgia, and their schedule is br- pretty brutal at the end. It was easy in the start, but without Tua, you're, you're an uphill climb against teams like that. But but man, if Clemson can add another one right now, no one's ever gone 15 to 0 back to back to win that, to win national championships, kind of in the in the modern era. I mean, if they get another one, uh, if the torch, I, I think right now they're neck and neck with Alabama, probably uh, in the race. But if Clemson gets another one up there this year, I mean, to me, the balance of power has, has firmly shifted over to Clemson and Dabo Sweeney, and I don't think that's, I don't even think there's a question about it. Uh, you know, we can make the argument that the college football playoff is the best thing to ever happen to Clemson because given the perception we had of the program over the past mm, 30-some-odd years before the playoff, I don't know even an undefeated Clemson team gets a shot at a national title in the old BCS system. No, that's a great point, and uh, this this year they definitely would not have because uh, you know LSU uh, LSU had a, had a had a wonderful uh, schedule, and um, you know and, and Ohio State uh, you know played some patsies like all the teams do as well, but you know they beat a good Wisconsin team twice. Michigan wasn't I don't think as great as everybody thought they were going to be, but they were very very solid. And Penn State's a solid football team. All three of those teams are far better than far better than anybody that Clemson played and the criticism of Clemson's schedule is valid in the regards that they haven't played anybody, but again, it's not their fault. They, they schedule two SEC teams as non-conference opponents, you know, Texas A&M, they, they were good a few years back. You thought under Jimbo Fisher, they'd be on the rise and they were, I think they were 12th in week two when Clemson played them. And then they just didn't really pan out. You know, South Carolina is kind of all of a sudden falling on some hard times. And, and then, I mean, it's just not Clemson's fault that, all of a sudden, Florida State stinks. Miami can't get it together. Virginia Tech's taking a step back. I mean, you figure those three teams are always going to be at least solid, if not really, really good. And, uh, you know, that really hasn't been the case the last few years, but especially uh, this season. But, yeah, by the old BCS format, it would have been a no-brainer. It would have, we'd be looking at Ohio State playing LSU in the championship game. And I don't even think Clemson could make an argument. You know, whether you're a Clemson fan or you're part of the program, because that's just because the schedule is that there was just going to be two teams, it would be Ohio State and LSU. And like you said, Clemson would be on the outside looking in in the old format. He covers Clemson for the Spartanburg Herald Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric J. Boynton. Eric, go enjoy a little vacay before the game. We're going to try to get out. Like I said, fingers crossed his son stays out a while. But always great to talk to Scott. I always good to hear you on the radio. And again, I really, really appreciate you guys uh, giving me the chance to call with you today. All right, Eric. Appreciate your time. Be safe, pal. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year. All right. It's Eric Boynton, Spartanburg Herald-Journal. And it is interesting to think about, for all the success that Clemson has had the last four years, maybe five years, for the way we view that program now, the the way we we put Dabo Sweeney up on this pedestal with the Nick Sabans of the world, even Urban Myers, and you could go on so on and so forth, it would be vastly different if there were no playoff. Clemson, at number three in this playoff, would not be in a BCS championship scenario. Wouldn't happen. Eric Eric nailed it. It would be LSU and Ohio State, one versus two, and rightfully so, in the old system. But by having this playoff, Clemson is able to get into this mix and win its championship. It's, it's, it's an interesting scenario to think about. It's an interesting situation. And people talk about expanding it and giving other teams opportunities. Perhaps there's another Clemson out there that, that could make this happen, just needs a shot to get into the mix. 
Cap it at six, man. Cap it at six. Do not go eight teams. I've told people repeatedly, repeatedly that six is the number. Some want to go 16. Oh, God, no. Lord, no. And don't go eight. Oh, well, let's give automatic bids for conference championship winners. Can't do it. Because what will end up happening is you'll get the occasional five-loss team that gets into the playoff and shouldn't be in the playoff. I think it was 2011, Wisconsin won the Big Ten with five losses because Penn State and Ohio State were on probation. Do you want a five-loss team in a playoff taking the spot of a team that's worthy? No. You still do it the way you do it. You have that group of people in a room, and they still go through their various data points and all that, and they decide who should be in. But I think six is the number, and you give one and two a bye. You play the first rounds on college campuses, and then you go to the bowl games. That's just my wacky idea. How would you like to have it? 1-800-849-2761. You're listening to The David Glenn Show. Mike Krzyzewski joining us. We asked folks who work with at Duke if you've changed or mellowed over the years. Well, you know, mellow is having a glass of wine and looking over, you know, the sunset, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't see how you can be mellow and coach a game. That can't happen. If it does, then you shouldn't be coaching. Keep it here on The David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. The Walk-On's Independence Bowl. Terrible name. If I'm a scholarship athlete, I'm boycotting that bowl game. Either way, it kicks off 4 o'clock ESPN. Miami, the U, versus Louisiana Tech. Kane, seven-point favorites. And then tonight, the Quick Lane Bowl. Pitt versus Eastern Michigan. 8 o'clock ESPN. Pitt Panthers, 12-and-a-half-point favorites. Two more ACC teams on deck for tomorrow. North Carolina, Wake Forest, they're going bowling. And then the floodgates open. And all the other games are being played left and right, including college football playoffs, semifinal Saturday. Number four, Oklahoma. Number one, LSU. Four o'clock on ESPN. LSU, 13-and-a-half-point favorites. And then number three, Clemson. Number two, Ohio State. Clemson, two-point favorite for that 8 o'clock kickoff on ESPN. It's the Fiesta Bowl. And it's the sixth college football playoff. We clamored for it. We begged for it. We got it. Now we're in year six. Who will win the championship? And I, I'm, I'm trying to do the mental gymnastics right now to determine every team that's won a championship in the five previous years. Charles, help me out here. We've got Alabama, Ohio State, Florida State, Clemson. Would that be correct, sir? Yeah, that's it. Was it Florida State? Florida State didn't win the playoff. No, 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 no. no. They won the year before the playoff. Right. They beat Auburn, I believe, in a title game. That was Jameis Winston. So was Alabama two titles? Ohio State won the first one, I want to say, in 2014. Clemson win two? Clemson has two. Yeah, they won two. Yeah, they had the Hunter Renfro and then last year. So that's two. I want to say Bama has two, and then Ohio State has one. We should know this. I should know this. Yeah, that sounds about right. I'm not even going to put this on you. I I should know this, but I, I do think that is correct. And the number of teams that have actually participated in the playoff is also limited. This is the first time Alabama has not been in it, which I think speaks volumes about not only – 
the, uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide, but perhaps the selection process as a whole. Um, okay, Ohio State beat Oregon in 2014. And it says, yeah, I'm reading it now, Alabama and Clemson. One, one of the two has won every playoff except the first. So there's only been three teams in this five-year history going on six of the college football playoffs to win the national title. That's where we're at. I got, I got to admit, I don't have a dog in it. I'm not a Clemson fan. I'm not a Bama fan. I'm, I'm a college football fan. But I, I didn't mind Clemson and Alabama playing every year. I mean, that's good theater, dude. It's great to watch. Now, is it good for the sport? I don't know. And, and it kind of goes back to a discussion we had in the preseason. Coming into this season, it was Alabama 1, Clemson 1A, or Clemson 1, Alabama 1A, and then there was supposed to be this wide-ass gap, man, between the rest of them. No. It didn't happen. It ended up being much, much, much more parity than we expected. Much more parity than we expected. Uh, nobody saw LSU coming on as they did. Uh, we knew Oklahoma would be good, but we didn't know they would be in a number. You know, we didn't know we'd make the playoff. Ohio State, we knew would be good. We didn't know they'd be that good. Bama didn't even make the playoff. I mean, what does that say about the quality of college football across the board? And can you attribute it to, again, the way the offenses have evolved? It's, it's, it's a fascinating – it's good for the sport. It's good for the sport, especially when you've got, you've got a one-loss Appalachian State team you could have made an argument it should have been considered. I mean, they lost their bowl game and I guess in some ways, you know, validated not getting in. But you could have, you could have made the argument they were the best group of five team. That goes back to my point earlier, Charles. If we go six teams, we already have that uh, the, the New Year's Six Bowls, and the best group of five team gets in. Put them, put one in a playoff, maybe, or does that water down the product? I think for a group of five to get in, they have to go undefeated. Yeah, if you're undefeated, yeah. if you have a UCF team yeah. that's undefeated, do you have an automatic bid for the best group of five team? But you're saying it should be undefeated. I don't I don't think it should be an automatic bid because some year that team just would not right. pass the eye test, in my opinion. Are you an eye test guy? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean the numbers, all this say this, but, I mean, the eye test is really, in my mind, what differentiates one team from another. And that's my only real beef with the selection committee because one week they're all about the eye test and the next week they're all about the sabermetrics and all that. Yeah, they need to be more consistent about what they judge things on. I mean, they say one thing one week, next week another thing. One year, two different years, they say, oh, we looked at this and this, and then the next year this and this. They need to be more consistent on what they look at. And poor Rob Mullins has to go out there and, and say that message, and he looks like he's the one who's changing the, the, the narrative each week. It's an interesting dynamic, but I'm glad we've got it. I'm glad we can sit here and complain about the process and not have the process. I'll say that right now. Racing lost one of its all-time greats, one of its legends, one of its pioneers last Friday. Junior Johnson passed away at age 88. We're going to reflect back on his career. We're going to reflect back on his life and his impact not only on NASCAR, but on society when Jeff Hammond of Fox Sports joins us on the other side. You're listening to The David Glenn Show. 
The David Glenn Show, where the great guests have so much fun, they never want to leave. I'll come give you a pep talk before your next show if you need me to. We could use that from you, Webb Simpson, anytime. Hey, I'll be your intern after this. this. Is everything open, man? We'll take Joe Harris as an intern every day <laughs> and twice on Sunday. Listen weekdays to The David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. NASCAR season, we're in that in-between. Ready for 2020, but not quite ready for 2020. Media Day will be coming up, Hall of Fame inductions, all that. And one of the first guys to go into the Hall of Fame, well, we lost him last week. And he was not only, and again, I'll say it, he was not only an icon in auto racing and NASCAR, but it, he was a dude. He impacted our society, our culture in a lot of different ways. I mean, when you make a, when they make a movie about you and you're mentioned in a Bruce Springsteen song, you're legit. You're big time. And that was the case for Junior Johnson. Died last week, age 88. Gone but not forgotten, and our guest will agree. He's an analyst for Fox Sports and a former crew chief for Junior Johnson. Jeff Hammond, welcome to the David Glenn Show. Hey, I'm glad to be here today. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, we appreciate you coming on, and I hope you had a very good Christmas, but I'm sorry you were mourning your uh, your friend and your mentor. Yeah, it, it's really it saddens me, but at the same time, uh, it, I know when a junior's at peace and that he lived a full life and all the people that he touched, a lot of people reached out. And, uh, you know, the last few days, you know, acknowledging what they meant to him, what he meant to our industry and like you said earlier kind of like what he meant to the world i mean he was one of those icons that uh as simple as he may have been uh he did so much with you know what i what i consider not a a lot of what you consider um, college education but he had a ton of country smarts you know what i'm saying he was just he was a man who understood things in a very unique way well, and, and Jeff, that's one of the things I think gets lost in all this. I mean, he was innovative in a lot of different ways as an owner and as a mechanic and, and just outside the racetrack. Oh, yeah. He just he just kept on taking what he learned growing up and applying it to uh, everyday life and making it work for himself from uh, when he started driving and driving for Ray Fox down at uh, Daytona. He was able to win the race at Daytona, racing a race car that was, you know, by all practical purposes, un under horsepower. But he developed a, the ability to run into the slipstream or the, the draft, as we call it today, and make that work for him. He was able to stretch his fuel mileage and make a you know the car with less horsepower really hand it, hand it to the, you know, the guys with the big horsepower that day, and he was able to get his uh, Daytona 500 win with that. And he continued that you know creativeness all the way through uh, his driving career, but when it, once he became the basically the owner and the head of everything when it comes to his company, from building engines to building cars and building teams, uh, he just he kept doing it in a very unique manner from the way he paid you. When I first went to work for him in like 1976, I learned how to manage money because I was getting paid once a month. Oh, wow. And uh, it wasn't a lot of money back then, but he taught me how to manage it and stretch it for that month. And he taught everybody that worked for him. I think everybody that's ever came through uh, his business, they learned 
number one, to manage money, but number two, how to do more than just be a mechanic or a truck driver or a machinist. You know, he made you work on the farm. I mean, we worked, you know, I worked out helping plant crops to slaughter hogs to work with cattle. I mean, it wasn't just uh, one position as far as a, a tire changer or, or a guy who turned wrenches. Did you know what you were getting into when, when you went to work for him? I mean, surely to goodness, when you had a job interview or whatever, he didn't say, well, you're going to be out feeding chickens. And by the way, you're also going to be a crew chief or something. Uh, it's funny you bring up job interview. There was no job interview. It was a situation where his current crew chief at the time, Herb Nabb, came to me at Darlington the fall race that year in 76 and said, hey, you, you can change tires. Yeah. Can you weld? Yeah. Can you drive a truck? I said, yes, sir. I know how to do all those things. He said, well, we'd, we'd like to talk to you in the morning. You know, it wasn't anything like a job interview. We won't talk to you in the morning. So I had been working for my dad in construction, came back from Darlington that night, told him that I had a chance to go to work maybe for Junior Johnson, but I had to go, I, as I told him, an interview. So I get up there that morning at 8 o'clock, and Herb was working on a car by himself. And he said, come on in here and help me, man. They were trying to get the engine out of the car from the day before. They, they'd wrecked. So we were, the only person in the shop was me and him at 8 o'clock that morning. And we're in there. We start taking the engine out. Well, I worked, I worked that entire day with him. Went to lunch, whole nine yards, came back. Left there about 7.30 at night, and we got ready to loot 7.30 at night. He said, uh, I'll be back in here tomorrow morning about 7 o'clock. Can you be back here then? That was a job interview, and Junior walked through one time and said, hey, boy, how you doing? That was it. That was it. There was no, no formal. I didn't hand a resume or anything like that. The resume was, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And I spent the next, you know, almost 12 years doing that. What what what's the biggest thing other than the managing money? What what's the biggest thing that maybe you learned un, under his tutelage? Not to get excited. Um, Junior was very respected and a, and a whole lot of uh, intimidating to a certain degree uh, because he was a you know pretty pretty good sized guy. He slung that jack, you know. He just and he had that that little persona of the fact that he was known when he drove as the Wilkes County wild man. And I think a lot of people, like I say, they were, they were a little bit intimidated by him. But through all the stuff that I was with him through, which included the 1979 Daytona 500 when then our driver, Cale Yarborough, got in fight with the, with the Allison brothers there at the Daytona 500, um, Junior never, never, never raised his voice. He never said anything, go, go help your driver or anything like that. We all... Heard they were crashing over there and they were fighting. And several of our guys in the pits turned and acted like they were going to run around to there. And I was one up. and getting ready to run. And something told me, said, let me look back and see what Junior's doing. Junior was just putting his headset in the in the suitcase. And uh, I went back and said, Junior, what are we going to do? He said, we need to get his pits cleaned up and go, <laughs> then go load that race car. Every situation that you would think the man would get excited, he never got excited. And being calm through adversity and pressure, I think helps you make good decisions. And he also taught me when it came to the, the crew chief and role is knowing when to gamble. He said, you know, you don't gamble in the middle of the race, you know, like stretching fuel mileage or tires or anything like that. You stretch it when it means something. Uh, for me, I can tell you four races that I won as a crew chief, and not all of them with junior. I won the 89 Daytona 500, 
on fuel mileage. I won Pocono on fuel mileage. I mean, I go down the list of a couple more. And all of those are because knowing the right place at the right time and not getting excited about anything to make sure it's a good calculated decision were, were huge for me. And it proceeded the rest of the way throughout, you know, uh, my career, all the way up into the television. Look at a situation. Basically, make a good decision. Think of a good react, a good, not reaction, a good action to go forward on, and then execute it. We're joined by Jeff Hammond, Fox Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Hollywood Jeff. And Jeff, did he ever, maybe not on his own, but I'm sure y'all asked him or he, somebody else brought it up. Mentioned movies being made and these big articles and, and Springsteen talking about him in a song. Did did he ever address that? No, no. That's the thing. It's kind of funny. He, he, sometimes he'd make he'd really kind of like laugh at it. He said he sometimes it, especially like with the uh, Last American Hero. He laughed about a couple things. So I tried to tell Jeff Bridges I wasn't exactly how it was, but you know how Hollywood is. They gotta they kind of make things a little bit bigger than what it is, but. Uh, no, he he just he never really acted like a man who you know kind of like had the industry to a certain degree certain degree in the palm of his hand and a lot of people talking about him you know in in both positive and negative senses because until you know I was so so happy to be with him especially when Ronald Reagan you know pardoned him for you know that little yeah. stint that he did in the federal prison for moonshining um that really that really excited him and that really made him feel like you know that he knew what he did was wrong but what he did wrong he didn't feel like was much more than a glorified speeding ticket you follow me mm-hmm. uh, he got caught at his daddy's steel and 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 ran from it and that's why that where they called him they didn't catch him you know hauling moonshine or anything like that but you know he still had to serve time and I think the fact that he was able to get a lot of his rights back, I mean, the idea of voting was very big to Duke, and that was one thing he got back. And uh, that was, you know, a good time to be there. And he was always always really proud of that moment. Uh, As much as it was, you know, we won championships. I think that that meant, meant that much to him. Jeff, when when he went into the Hall of Fame, he was part of that first super class, and after that, you know, everything to me, after about the first three years, it kind of got watered down. When you think of the NASCAR Hall of Fame now, and, and again, I'm kind of changing subjects here, do you do you have a different criteria going forward? Because there were only so many pioneers, and there's only been so many guys win championships. To get into the NASCAR Hall of Fame now, how will you gauge a guy? I still look at him on the same basis that they, they set forth to begin with. I mean, I think they should try real hard uh, to maintain that as much as they can. Is Once again, what have you done for the sport to continue not only be a, a focal point in the sport, whether you're a driver or a crew chief or an engine builder, but what have you done for the sport to continue to kind of grow the sport? Are you uh, an individual that once you arrived on the scene, have you continued to have a presence? And keep moving uh, the brand, and I'm talking about the NASCAR brand as a whole. Are you, are you continuing to move it forward? And I think that's what's important to, to our sport, to any sport. It's not just what you did when you were there involved. It's what do you do afterwards? Do you continue to, to hold it up and and get you know show how proud you are of it and how 
how challenging it still is today as much as it was when, when it was first started, you know, like in 1949. Did, did you ever get to talk to Junior, though, about maybe his thoughts on, on overexpansion? I, it's, you know, NASCAR 10, 15 years ago really just started getting out of its ancestral home, and it's gone to places it probably shouldn't, and, and it's come at the cost of some places it needs to be, most, you know, specifically North Wilkesboro. What, what were Junior's thoughts on that? He wasn't happy with it because he felt like those racetracks were the backbone of NASCAR. They're the ones that were there when nobody else was there. And they gave character to a lot of drivers and and the sport as a whole. I mean, there was North Wilkesboro. I mean, it was a, a track that, that ran downhill on the front straightaway and uphill on the back straightaway. And it was, you know, a driver's racetrack. And that's one thing that Junior was really big on. He didn't like racetracks that just, you know, kind of like played into horsepower and didn't really bring the driver into play. Uh, Wilkesboro, Bristol in particular, he always felt like that that's one of the most driver, driver, I mean, you had to be a great driver. and You had to be a real man in his mind, especially, you know, in the day when he was racing, to race those cars without air condition, without all the special seats, with, without power steering. I mean, there were so many things in that one racetrack alone, uh, that it just kind of like it, it fit his his bill. Uh, he just get up on the wheel, and any driver that's ever driven for him, those are the kind of racetracks that they excelled at, you know, at Bristol and Darlington, Wilkesboro, Martinsville. These were short tracks where you really had to get in there and, and wrestle that race car, and you had to have, you know, finesse and talent and grit. That's something he always believed in. He was a hard charger, and the people with um, – look at his driving career and they said, well, he never won a championship. Well, he only ran, he never ran a full full season. He won, he ran 14 years, never run a full season, and yet he won 50 races. And when you look at his overall ability to lead laps and be a hard charger, he ranks right up there in the top three or four. Now, that's in comparing him to guys like Richard Petty and David Pearson, for example. So this was his style, was being a hard charger. That's the way he built his race cars. I know when I worked for him, if the driver was breaking something, then we fixed the car. If the engine couldn't hold up as hard as they wanted to run it and be up front, we fixed the engine. And when we got all that stuff coming together, the, from the time I was there, like say in 76, I left there and basically uh, 88, you know, 10, 11 year stretch, we won six championships and we never finished outside the top five. And that's, that's the style that he brought. And that he really, you know, held a standard uh, for us as a, as a team to, to try to adhere to. But that's what, you know, he said, if they can beat us and we're doing all that, then they aren't. We're joined by Jeff Hammond, Fox Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Hollywood Jeff. And Jeff, before we let you go, what's next for you? Well, I'm just about like what you said. I'm in between right now, winding down and gearing back up. Uh, I've still got... Uh, a lot of radio I'm going to be doing also, you know, Sirius XM Radio 90, and i uh, be doing a late shift with Brad Gilly. And next week, he and I are also going to come in and uh, do the the morning drive for the next three three days, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. Uh, so just a, a lot of getting ready for 2020. It's right around the corner, and we've got so many new rules, some new driver crew chief combinations, uh, just so much to talk about. And then we got... Kyle Busch, you know, the man who 
kind of went to sleep the latter part of the year, but woke up just in time to win our championship and uh, be interested to see how he comes out and starts the season off uh, and whether or not his owner, Joe Gibbs, can um, do what they did a year ago. All four teams winning, winning races and pretty much dominating the, the NASCAR scene. So uh, a, lot, a lot going on. We've uh, we taken the holidays off, but it's, it's back, uh, back to business as usual. All right. You can follow him on Twitter at Hollywood Jeff. Jeff, appreciate you coming on. I hope you have a good new year. We catch up down the road. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And uh, like I say, I appreciate you wanting to talk about my boss. I mean, means a lot to me. He was a special man, and uh, we're going to miss him a lot, but he uh, he gave us a lot at the same time. Well, I'm going to look for the movie on Amazon tonight. So There you go. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Appreciate it, bud. Thank you. That's Jeff Hammond, Fox Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Hollywood Jeff. Again, Junior Johnson, a North Carolina icon. We lost him last Friday at age 88. Coming back to close out the David Glenn Show on the day after Christmas. Jerome Robinson, are you a hugger or a handshake guy? H how does it work if Adam Silver is waiting for you? I really don't know. I, I hope it's not awkward. Uh, <laughs> you know, I hope it's not like a hand to hug to hand kind of thing, but I don't know. I might just mess around and just hug him, no hands. I think he's a hugger. You're listening to The David Glenn Show. That's it for the David Glenn Show on Thursday. I'd like to thank our guest, Peter Burns of the SEC Network, talking about the Oklahoma LSU college football playoff semifinal. Frank Garcia, six-year member of the Carolina Panthers, talking about the future of the Carolina Panthers. Eric Boynton, boots on the ground in the desert, previewing Clemson, Ohio State, and Jeff Hammond on the life of Junior Johnson. For my producer, Charles, everybody have a good evening. We're back tomorrow. Mr. President, Barack Obama, welcome to the David Glenn Show. How are you? David, it's great to be on. It's wonderful to, to talk to the folks in North Carolina. I always say uh, I love the state of North Carolina, love the people of North Carolina. Even the folks who don't support me down there are nice to me. The David Glenn Show.